6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 8, through 5, verse 1. Well, welcome to our exposition of the Song of Songs. And of course, every time that we go into the Word of God, we always want to go with prayer. So let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for this book. And we pray, Father, that through your Spirit, you will accomplish your purpose in each of our lives, that we each might grow in grace and the knowledge of our bridegroom, our shepherd king, and we do pray, Father, that your purpose be accomplished in each of our lives, in Jesus' name, amen. So here we are with the Song of Songs, and we're in session two, and uh, this is, uh, you know, no discussion of personal lovemaking should miss an allusion to the ultimate opera written by none other than Solomon himself. And uh, as Israel's third king, he ruled from 971 to about 931 B.C. And he was perhaps more gifted in literary skill than any other king of Israel, for he wrote over 3,000 proverbs and 1,005 songs, according to 1 Kings 4. Of the more than 1,000 songs he wrote, only this one, was designed by God to be included in the Holy Scriptures. And so that should give us pause. And Jesus endorsed the Scripture, said the Scripture can't be broken. So this is included in that sweeping endorsement. So we need to understand that as we go forward here. Now it is outlined in five love poems, typically called idols. And uh, each one of these consists of a few reflections. And so, it's in two basic parts. Part one is courtship and marriage, and part two will be the, uh, the uh, sexual adjustments after marriage. Very practical book, a surprisingly practical book, once you get used to the peculiar idioms that they used at that time. The first idol is the wedding day, and it consists of three reflections. And uh, the second idol is the courtship period, uh, and then... The third one, making up the first idol, uh, is the marital union in, in broad terms. And uh, so following that, there will be a fourth idol with sex, dealing with sexual problems. And the fifth idol will wrap it up with the return to Galilee. What's interesting is, as part of the third idol, we have the consummation of the marriage in uh, chapter 4, verse 15 and following. What's interesting about that is that turns out to be in the exact center of the piece. There's 111 lines prior to this consummation, and there's 111 lines after. Not a big deal, except it demonstrates to us that this is designed. And one of the discoveries we each need to make for ourselves about the Bible 
is that every detail in the Bible is there by deliberate design. Every number, every place name, uh, uh, many of the puns and so forth. Uh, even the structures that lie underneath the text itself evidences skillful design. And uh, once you discover that for yourself, you're confronted with a second discovery, and that is that the origin of that message had to occur from outside our time domain because it writes history before it happens in such precision that it, you can't ascribe it to chance. So here, even in this opera, in this collection of love poems about marriage, we discover it's very carefully designed. And uh, so now uh, the wedding day was the first idol, and we took that in the previous session. In this session, we're going to deal with the next two idols, which will include the consummation of the marriage, the peak, if you will, of the whole piece. So the uh, first idol we took last time, and this time we're going to focus on the next two idols. And the idol, uh, the second idol consists of two reflections. And so let's just jump in. We are in Song of Songs, uh, chapter 2, verse 8. The voice of my beloved, behold, he cometh leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. And uh, this seems to reflect springtime in the Galilee, where her lover paid her a visit with the eagerness of a gazelle. And uh, as Solomon approached his beloved's home, she excitedly described him as coming as a gazelle or a young stag. And uh, this emphasized his attractive appearance, of course, and his strength and his agility. So these are superlatives and, and, and a lot of fun. He approached the wall around her parents' home and then peered through the lattice. He was anxious to see her, is the flavor of what's coming here. She says, my beloved is like a roe or a gazelle or a young heart or a stag. Behold, he standeth behind our wall and looketh forth at, or let's say through, the windows, showing himself through the lattice. Now, what is a gazelle? Most of us probably haven't encountered a gazelle. It looks like a deer, runs very swiftly, and is very graceful. And in this book, it will be mentioned seven times. It was considered a symbol of virility and is a most complimentary term here. And uh, the wall refers to the house itself, uh, uh, rather uh, the outer wall surrounding the house, which would require a different Hebrew word. It would seem that he is looking through the window is the way we should visualize this, I believe. And uh, so, looking, looketh forth. That word in Hebrew implies a fixation for reflection and meditation. In other words, it's an intensive term, if you will. Showing himself through the lattice. In other words, he's peering. You can see him with a twinkle in his eye. Uh, he is, as we might say, feasting his eyes. Now, most guys, I think, in today's world would probably be more like a bull in a china shop. Biblical standards for masculinity always emphasize strength and beauty dwelling together in the same body. That may surprise you. Men need to be romantic is the, uh, is the undertone here. And I'll ask you the question, are you a gazelle type or are you a gorilla? We tend to espouse perhaps different models than they did back then. Moving on, verse 10. My beloved spake and said unto me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. He's come north, up to the Galilee, after a long winter. He seems to desire her and to defer his business. He's probably up there on a business trip, 
he owned the property that her family managed. But he, uh, he's on a business trip, and yet he's departing here for some personal uh, attention. So Solomon, her lover, asked his darling to go for a walk in the countryside. Come away, he says. At the beginning and the end of his invitation, he said, come with me. In, uh, in uh, both here in verse 13, and, and he will echo that same thing in chapter 8 of this piece. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing of birds is come. The voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The word turtle in the King James is a little misleading. The term actually refers to a turtle dove, a, a, a bird. It's not so much a, a singing bird. It's a migratory bird, which implies a bird of passage. It signals, in effect, that spring has arrived. That's the whole flavor that they're painting here. The fig tree putteth forth her green figs, and the vines with the tender grape give a good smell. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. So spring is in the air and all that it suggests. Now several statements here refer to the beauty of spring. The winter is past. The word for winter there is used only here in the Old Testament. It refers to the cloudy season of March and April with the latter rains, as they call it. Flowers appear in the spring, adding delightful colors to the landscape, causing the people to sing for joy. Doves coo, announcing, so to speak, spring's arrival. So that's the flavor that's being painted here in every way, visually and in terms of fragrance and, and, and so forth. Fig trees put forth their early fruit, it says. The early figs were either those that had remained unripened on the trees from the previous summer and then ripened at the beginning of spring, or they were the small edible buds that appeared in March. That term is used for both of them. Grapevines blossom, giving off their fragrance just before the grapes appear. Now, this is kind of an important observation. Most of us, when we read our Bible, haven't done our homework in terms of the agricultural calendar. We need to understand that grapes were, grapevines blossomed in the spring and were harvested in the fall, which means, by the way, there's no such thing as grape juice in Israel in the springtime because they're harvested in the fall. They have no refrigeration normally, obviously. And so when you get to Nisan, Passover, you're talking about wine, and a lot of people make a big thing about that, but you need to understand the agriculture, agricultural calendar, and uh, some of those controversies actually evaporate. Moving on. The elaborate description of spring here was probably meant to do more than simply emphasize the beauty of spring. It is likely also describing their budding relationships, if I can put it that way. In a sense, when one falls in love, it's like spring in everything else, because every, everything seems fresh and new. The world is seen from a different perspective, which is how Solomon felt when he was with his beloved. And I think many of us remember that so vividly, that when you're in love, everything gleams a little brighter, that colors are a little more intense, and, and so forth. Moving on, verse 14. Oh, my dove, thou art in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the stairs. Let me see thy countenance. Let me hear thy voice. For sweet is thy voice, and thy countenance is comely. So her lover's pleading continues. She's remaining in her house like a dove or a wood pigeon that typically hides in the cracks between rocky places. And uh, this even may echo these, these uh, cleft in rocks, even echoes in a sense the refuge in Edom, the seek 
if you will, that gets into Petra, and we could go on about that, but let's move on here. Countenance is in the plural, by the way, as an amplification. The fullness of her beauty is what's really underscored there. The cleft in the rock. Are you in a cleft in the rock is one of the questions. Remember in 1 Corinthians 10.4, that rock was Christ. Paul makes that idiomatic um, relationship there, and we'll be talking more about that a couple of sessions from now as we get into the allegorical overtones here. Remember the song, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, grace hath hide me safe in thee. And uh, we seek that same refuge in a sense. There is a parallel here. So anyway, she goes forward and speaks as they walk. Take us the, uh, take us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. Now, what on earth is she talking about with foxes? You and I have no experience with that. That's an idiom very familiar to them. Foxes were noted for their destructive tendencies in crop fields. So her reference here to those animals that probably, is probably suggested metaphorically problems in the relationship, anticipating problems in a relationship. If you're a vineyard, if you have a vineyard, foxes are a source of problems. So the term here dwells, uh, takes advantage of that. The foxes are those little problems that can intrude upon a relationship. And she's uh, uh, making allusion to that right here. Take us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines. She's not talking about the vineyard, except idiomatically. She's talking about the kinds of problems that come up in a marriage. Foxes are proverbial destroyers in, Nahum, uh, in Nehemiah 4.3, Lamentation 5.18, Ezekiel. Through the scripture, you can corroborate that use of an idiom there. The beloved was asking her lover to take the initiative in solving the problems that were potentially potentially harmful in their relationship. And how important that is to anticipate those things, because those little things can become bigger problems if not dealt with properly. The foxes represent obstacles or temptations as have plagued lovers throughout the centuries. Perhaps it is the fox of uncontrolled desire which drives a wedge of guilt between a couple. That's one possibility. Perhaps it's the fox of mistrust and jealousy, which breaks down the bond of love. Or it may be the fox of selfishness and pride, which refuses to let one acknowledge his own fault to the other. Or it may be the unforgiving spirit that will not accept the apology of the other. These foxes have been ruining vineyards for years, and the end of their work is not in sight. And these was, this was extracted from Glickman's The Song for Lovers. I thought it was well expressed, so we uh, took it as he said it. Take us the foxes, the little foxes, that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes, she says. And here the foxes are little or possibly great, enemies which threaten, gnaw, or destroy love before it ripens to full enjoyment. She's suggesting that everything that will challenge the peace of love be rendered harmless or removed early. Catch the little foxes. Very perceptive, very sound. Nail them early. Many people leave some of the thorny problems. Well, we'll, we'll get into that after we're married. Big mistake. The issues, do you want to have kids or not kids? Where are you going to worship? All these kinds of things should be resolved early. <laughs> you don't wait until after the marriage. So many people do it, it's a big mistake. You want to be careful about what the Scripture calls a root of bitterness. That's a phrase you hear a lot of. It comes from Hebrews 12, 15, 
where the writer says, looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. A root of bitterness. And uh, this is uh, one of the most interesting, the most dangerous hurts or resentments are the most justified ones. The ones that aren't substantially justified will take, often take care of themselves, but the ones that are very, you're, where you're justified in having that resentment are the ones that are the most dangerous because they're the ones most likely to keep you in bondage to them. And that's an important insight. The more justified it is, the more important it is to, to forgive that, get it out of your situation so you don't hold yourself in bondage to that resentment. Well, moving on to verse 16, my beloved is mine and I am his. He feedeth, or shepherds, if you will, as a verb, among the lilies. And uh, speaking to herself, using personal pronouns, mine, his, and he, in verse 16, is likely that verse 17 that's going to follow is also a soliloquy. He browses or pastures the flock among the lilies. And he's going to, she's going to use that same phrase when we get to chapter 6. She pictures him at work. He has business to attend to, but she is confident of their love remaining true to each other. Commitment is the foundation of a good marriage, not sex or falling in love. Commitment. The key word in the Greek is agape. That's an act of the will, not emotion, the will. And uh, the same thing is true of ahav. The word love here is, is it's a commitment to love, not an emotional reaction kind of love. When we make the vows, God expects us to keep them. Many of, many of us have pledged to till death do us part. Continuing then, until the daybreak and the shadows flee away, turn, my beloved, and be thou like a roe or a young heart upon the mountains of Bether. The word Bether is the translation of a Hebrew word actually means separation, the mountains of separation. She's freeing him to attend to his work. See, she's dealing with fox number one. She's freeing him to attend to his work. How important that is. In confidence that when it is done, he will give her his undivided attention. So that's the quid pro quo, if you will. And that's fox number two. To give her, when, that's dealt, when the work is dealt with, undivided attention. So she's starting to nail off some of these little foxes as you, watch, as you start diagramming what's going on here. Couples in courtship often defer potential problem areas with the attitude that we can work these things out when we're married. Big mistake. Big mistake. This brings unnecessary baggage into the union and will result in tensions. How serious? Who knows? But that's why you want to deal with them up front. The little foxes need to be identified and dealt with. It's simply a question of priorities. Give priorities to those things that will threaten you later. This includes the need for a husband to attend to earning the bread and a future. And uh, Proverbs 24 says that you should build your barn before your house. In other words, deal with your source of income first and then deal with the house. And ladies don't like verse 27 of that series too much. The coin can be flipped over too, by the way. There's another side to this issue. The husband also needs to put aside uh, his, his work. He needs to put suitable boundaries, if you will, around the demands of the work or to reserve quality time for the family. And that's especially difficult for people who are self-employed or running their own business because there's never an end to your work. It's also 
a major threat to those that are in ministry because there's more needs than you can possibly deal with. You need to be diligent in creating the boundaries so that the family doesn't suffer, so the relationship with your spouse does not suffer. In my own case, that's probably one of my biggest guilts. There are very few mistakes I've missed. I've made most of them. But as I look back at my life, my primary regret, we've been married 53 years, but for most of those years, I regarded my family as my support group. I was out wheeling and dealing and building companies and whatever, and my family I viewed as my report. I didn't abuse them in a direct sense, but I took them for granted. And as I look back at our over 50 years of marriage, my main regret is those years where I presumed upon my wife rather than supported her, rather than really invest in the marriage. If our marriage was successful, it was because of her diligence, her initiatives, not mine. And uh, that's, that's probably my primary regret as I look back. See, both need to be dealt with. Both need to be scheduled activities to provide for quality time for the love relationship. Marriage is something you invest in. Marriage is something you maintain. This is something, it isn't an event that occurs on a day of celebration. No, it's a commitment through life to continue to deal with and invest in. And it goes through phases and they get richer and richer if handled properly. This is especially difficult for the self-employed, as I mentioned, in those in ministry. Because there's, there, the demands have little to do with boundaries. And that goes for the girls too, by the way, and the housework. That also can never, is never really finished. Among the biggest rivals to the husband are the children. And, and if you think I'm kidding, go home tonight, open the icebox, the refrigerator, and see what's lined up there. You'll find the favorite things of the kids. Do you find the favorite things of the husband? Check it out yourself. Now, part of the solution to all this, of course, is that maybe the tailoring of your career goals. Careers are important, but they can also be gods we worship. We could be careful about that. Tailoring the career goals so they include the family and the marriage. And we deal with some of that in the Vortex Strategy Series if you want to go to some practical applications. Okay, courtship and marriage. We had the first idol in the first session. And uh, we had those first three reflections, you may recall, in the earlier session. We've just gone through the second idol, the springtime visit. And we're now going to move to the second reflection of it, the fifth reflection in total, of uh, dreams of separation. She has a recurring dream that's illuminating here in chapter, opening chapter 3, verse 1. After her lover leaves, she recalls a recurring dream during the winter months when she was separated from him. This is going to deal with the the pain of separation, his absence, and the uncertainties that get associated with that. She says in verse 1, By night on my bed I sought him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not. Now the word night is in the plural, which implies what she's going to be describing here is a recurring dream she has. And uh, nothing is more frightening than to lose the sense of your Lord's presence, both in her sense, but also that sense that we experience. Remember, David said, thou, hast, thou didst hide thy face, and I was troubled in Psalm 30. So even David, in his relationship, uh, had that experience. And uh, sometimes this kind of thing is admonitory. It can maybe love's way of bringing the soul to realization of something cherished or allowed the 
that uh, grieves the Holy Spirit of God in, in, a, in a spiritual sense. Or it may be the testing of faith to see whether one can trust in the dark as well as in the light. That's true of a marriage and that's true of our spiritual walk. And uh, sometimes these things are deliberate testings. And uh, as Rutherford said, but flowers need night's cool sweetness, the moonlight and the dew. So Christ from one who loved him, his presence oft withdrew. That may surprise us, but it's a very real thing. Now, <laughs> what do a skydiver and a surfer have in common? There are some invitations you can't postpone. When it's time to move, you need to respond or miss out. And that's going to be uh, the response here. She says, I will rise now and go about the city, in the streets and in the broadways. I will seek him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not. So she's starting to experience that anxiety of his uh, uh, lack of uh, presence. The pain of absence. Is he playing hard to get? Or is he teaching us not to take him for granted? Those are the thoughts running through her mind. The watchmen that go out the city found me, to whom I said, saw ye him whom my soul loveth. The watchmen are the ones guarding the city, and she runs into the, the night police, so to speak, asks for help. Have you seen them? Are they of any help? No. She must find him herself. She no sooner inquires of his whereabouts when she spots him. Just like Jeremiah said, and ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. So that's true of the bridegroom here. It's also true of our bridegroom, and we'll get to that a couple of sessions later when we look more carefully at the allegorical implications of this love poem. She says in verse 4, I was but a little that I passed from them, but I found him whom my soul loveth. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her that conceived me. See, in her mind, her mother's home was a place of security. So in her dream, when she finally finds him, she gets a grip on him and brings, it, brings him to her place of security. So the dream that began as a nightmare ends happily in the first opportunity of privacy and security. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Song of Songs. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.